0: You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're
1: stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony,
2: well, there's nothing
3: you can't ask
2: on the Savage Lovecast. It snowed here in Seattle. We didn't have a white Christmas, but we had a very white boxing day. Anyway, when it snows in Seattle, there's no going into the office. There's no going down to the recording studio. So I am coming to you today from the closet in my bedroom. When I'm not sitting on the floor of the closet in my bedroom with a mic trying to record my podcast, I've been watching movies with the boys to pass the time until the snow melts and we can mask up and leave the house again. We watched Power of the Dog the other night, acclaimed director Jane Campion's new movie about a tortured closet case in the American West a century ago. I really enjoyed it. Then we watched Single All the Way, a new movie about a tortured out-of-the-closet case in New England today. The tortured closet case in Power of the Dog, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, is tormented by his own self-loathing and the impossibility of living as an openly gay man a century ago. The tortured out-of-the-closet case in Single All the Way, Peter, he's tormented by his incredibly aggressively supportive family and the impossibility of him having any privacy. Now, Power of the Dog is an Oscar-bait prestige picture, single all the way, is a by-the-book holiday rom-com. You're supposed to think about Power of the Dog and think about it deeply. Rom-coms, you're not supposed to think about them at all, much less deeply. Okay, here, here's a quick plot summary. Peter, played by Michael Urey, headed home for the holidays from sunny LA to snowy New England, excited to bring his new boyfriend home to meet the whole family because there is nothing his family wants more than for Peter to meet the right man and settle the fuck down. But Peter's new boyfriend turns out to have a wife at home. He's been leading a double life, so Peter has to dump him. And then he asks his roommate, Nick, played by out gay actor Philemon Chambers, to come home with him and pretend to be his boyfriend. They're besties, they've been living together for a long time. Everyone in Peter's family has already met Nick, and they all think Peter and Nick should be together, so why not, just for the holidays, give Peter's family what they want, and pretend that they're boyfriends. Hijinks ensue when Peter's mom, who plot twists, apparently doesn't think Peter and Nick should be together, fixes Peter up on a blind date with James, her hot new spin instructor, the only other gay man who lives in Peter's hometown. Now, it's obvious to everybody that Peter and Nick are perfect for each other. Everyone knows it except Peter and Nick. Even James, mom's hot spin instructor on the blind date with Peter, He sees it after a couple of dates because Peter won't shut up about Nick. Nick this, Nick that. James is pretty gracious about stepping aside and allowing Peter and Nick by the end of the movie to be together. But why weren't Peter and Nick, who've been living together for years, two gay men, roughly the same age, equally hot, why weren't they already together? Because they're friends. They were such good friends, such good gay friends. They didn't want to ruin their friendship by having gay sex. Traditional rom-coms have always presented a certain sanitized version of heterosexuality, particularly holiday-themed rom-coms, and why should a rom-com with gay leads be held to a different standard or be any better? But those sanitized versions of straight sexuality in straight rom-coms, they're at least recognizably straight, idealized straight, but plausible straight. The sanitized version of homosexuality in the handful of gay holiday rom-coms we've been subjected to over the last couple of years, and in Single All the Way in particular, not recognizably gay, not plausible gay. In Gayland, in LA, where Peter and Nick live, where everyone who made this movie lives, sex is pretty much how gay friendships start. Sex doesn't ruin gay friendships, sex makes gay friendships. Even if Peter and Nick hadn't slept together already, something they might wanna do before they get married at the end of this movie, they should at least be aware that most of their gay male friends have had sex with other gay men who went on to become their friends. If I were gonna tweak the script, if I were gonna tweak the plot line so it's a little gayer or a lot gayer, here's what I would do. Guy goes home with his long-term roommate, Peter and Nick. They've hooked up a few times, maybe they hooked up the night they met, but there was never the right amount of heat there. They didn't completely click sexually. Something was missing. But they really did like each other, which is why they moved in with each other, not as lovers, as roommates, who maybe sometimes messed around. And this is where a movie about gay relationships could lean into gay sexual practices. Let's just say that Peter and Nick aren't together because they're both bottoms. They don't see themselves together as a couple or being able to make it work as a couple because they're both bottoms. One person can't be all things to another person. And we're told when someone can't be all things to you, or when someone can't give you one very specific thing that you really need, you have to dump them. We've been told by a million rom-coms that you have to get everything from just one person, and that that one person can't be your everything and meet all your emotional and sexual needs. If there's a hole that person can't fill, you're supposed to break up, start over again. But there's another option, which is to keep that person and go find, maybe together, Someone who can fill that hole for you. So, wouldn't it be gayer? Wouldn't it be more interesting? Maybe it would be a different movie and I should go make that movie and stop complaining about this movie. be more interesting if Peter goes home, gets fixed up with mom's personal trainer, goes on that date, they hit it off. But since there's only one bar in this town, his roommate, Nick, walks in and Peter introduces Nick to James and they all hit it off and wind up having a threesome. And it's amazing and the sex is super hot and the missing piece all along, it's right there in front of them. The missing piece was... Another person. So Peter and Nick can now see how they can be together. They move to town, open a plant shop or whatever, and they're a couple, but mom's spin instructor becomes their regular third, their very special guest star, who also becomes a part of the family, invited to mom's place at Christmas. But when it's just the three of them, James is there to plow those two boys. Sometimes they hang out, sometimes they go ice skating or whatever it is people do in small towns, but just as often, James sends them a text, sends Peter and Nick a text, letting them know he's horned up and on his way over. And Nick and Peter clean out and wait by the door on their knees and elbows, asses up. I'd love to see that movie. Because for me, that's part of what being queer is about. Not waiting by the door with your ass up, but just writing your own rules. Taking what works for you, what might be quote unquote straight and queering it up, getting creative, setting your own terms and making your relationship work on your own terms. Yeah, I didn't like single all the way as much as I liked power of the dog. But maybe the problem was me. Maybe I have unrealistic expectations of rom-coms or maybe I was watching a rom-com. What I should have been watching was a porno. All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your Qs, lots of my A's. And on the magnum, a professor of obstetrics and gynecology, Dr. Daniel Grossman, joins me to discuss abortion medication before we get to the question and answers and the guests for this week's show, uh, happy new year, everybody. This is our last show of 2021. We will see you in 2022. And a big thank you to everyone who gave the Magnum Savage Lovecast as a gift this year. We really appreciate
1: your support. Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old cis gay male in London where I live with my 48-year-old male partner. We're in a very loving monogamous relationship and have been for the past four years I moved into his house about two years ago here in the city, but over the past year or so, I've developed feelings that I might be poly, or at least poly-curious. It started when a friend of ours posted on Instagram about their poly relationship, where he was supporting his boyfriend just before he went on a date, and um, something just clicked inside of me. I saw it and I just thought, that's what I am, or at least, you know, that's what I want. It's hard to describe, but it felt like an answer to a question that I didn't even know to ask. Since then, I've spoken to a few friends about this, and I've actually found that some happen to be polyamorous, or at least in some form of open relationship. But I just haven't been able to bring this up with my partner yet from the fear that the mere suggestion of this might be the beginning of the end for a few reasons. When we first started dating, he said that he didn't want, quote, a modern open relationship that everyone seems to want right now. At the time, I didn't object to this, since I also thought that this would be the best for me too, especially since that I grew up in the middle of nowhere and you just don't know what you don't know. Since he's nearly 20 years more experienced than I am, I'm presuming that he's been in this situation before and knows what he wants enough to ask for it. We love each other very much and are able to support each other really, really well. I'd be lying if I didn't say that there was some level of codependency between us, both ways. We both have horrifically stressful jobs and are able to take care of each other through those difficult times. The thing is, is that because I only think that I might be Polly and I haven't actually, you know, practiced it in any way, I keep going back and forth in my mind of if it's worth bringing this up. Yet, at the same time, the more that I suppress these thoughts... I also feel that it's hugely unfair to him. So I just feel stuck in this sort of limbo, really. I really value what we have, and I would just love to explore this with the both of us. But he's not great about talking about how he feels. So my question is, Dan, how should I approach this with him?
2: There's only one way you can approach this with your partner, with your boyfriend, and that's with the full understanding that revisiting this subject, which he may feel was closed along with the relationship at the beginning of the relationship is highly likely to upset him. I think you need some clarity. You need to get clear yourself on what it is you want. Exactly. Like a lot of people these days, you seem to use open and poly interchangeably. And of course they are different things. Someone who is comfortable with their much younger boyfriend or their much older boyfriend or their boyfriend who was born at the exact same time, having sex with other people, might not be comfortable with their boyfriend going on dates with other people. Poly means concurrent, often committed, romantic relationships, entanglements, relationships that come with expectations and obligations that require some space, the making of some space. And not just you, if you were dating someone else, making space for that person in your life, but your boyfriend making space in your shared life for you to have space for this other person in your life, making time for that. Is he willing to do that? Well, you know, a lot of people who wind up poly started out open. A lot of people who became open started out monogamous. He could get there. But it seems to me that you might want to keep the ask relatively small at first, that you're asking perhaps, to revisit the conversation that you guys had about the relationship that indeed you've come to the conclusion now that you're 28 years old, that maybe lifelong monogamy isn't for you and you don't want to end the relationship or get out of the relationship. But obviously you want to renegotiate the terms of the relationship, at least be able to have the conversation. There's no way to have that conversation without potentially upsetting your boyfriend But who knows, maybe he feels differently now. Maybe he feels more secure in the relationship now than he did then, if indeed his request for monogamy came from a place of insecurity, which it doesn't always. It could just be that he prefers a monogamous relationship. But I gotta say, you're not some rare endangered species. You're not some like hothouse orchid in that you wanna fuck around with other people. Most people do wanna fuck around with other people. Most people who are in monogamous relationships are still attracted to other people, not just sexually. Sometimes they get crushes on other people. So looking inward and discovering your poly isn't really to discover anything about yourself that isn't true about most people, including most people who have made and are honoring, as you have made and are honoring right now, a monogamous commitment. So let's just... Lower the stakes, lower the drama here. You're not, you don't have to come out as suddenly realizing you're poly. You just want to have a conversation with your boyfriend about these terms. And like most gay couples, you had an opt-in conversation about monogamy. Doesn't sound like it was a default setting. It was a decision that you two made together to be monogamous. You want to revisit that decision, see where he's at and tell him quite honestly, where you're at. And if you can't see yourself remaining in this relationship with him and being happy under the terms that you agreed to four years ago for the next however many decades you guys are together until your boyfriend dies or you die and one of you and you win the relationship contest, then you might have to end this relationship to be who you are to, to have what you want. If what you want is concurrent committed romantic and sexual relationships with more than one man.
4: Hi, Dan. I've just come out of an abusive relationship, which I recognize it to be now. Uh, he was controlling, jealous, used every insecurity of mine against me and was physically violent at times, especially the last event where he also threw my phone out of the window and I was bleeding. I caught contact with him. I reported him to the police and reported him socially on Instagram because I wanted him to face the truth of what was reality and not hide, because I still loved him. And I wanted him to have a future where he was not the piece of shit that he's being. I got into contact with him again when packing up this stuff. I found some things that he'd written just before all of this happened, where he acknowledged the pain that he was causing me and that he needed to stop, but didn't know how. Even though I had proposed several treatment ideas not organizing them for him but just suggested it he he was the first time I ever fell in love at the age of 27 Uh, I'd been in long stable relationships and healthy relationships at that but something had always been missing and when I met him I knew uh, I was going to fall in love with him I was skeptical of my gut instinct but something inside of me told me I would and there wasn't any love bombing phase or anything like that it was just him The problem is that now that we're back in contact via email, he's still very jealous. And he doesn't seem to be understanding what he's done, even though he should be starting therapy soon. And I don't know if I should cut contact again and risk being the terrible person that can become in his mind and losing the last shred of love that is there towards me, which sounds ridiculous. Or I should just cut him off, which talking to you now feels like the right answer, even though I don't want to
2: do it. You wanted him to become a better person. He's not, he hasn't become a better person just over email. He's still exhibiting the kind of jealous, controlling behavior that he exhibited while you two were in relationship, the kind of jealous, controlling behavior that is often a red flag for emotional and physical abuse. As it was with this guy, he's not in therapy. He hasn't done anything to get better. All he's done is figure out a way to weasel back into your life. You shouldn't have contacted him in the first place. I'm not not blaming you. And the thing about abusers is that they're often very charming. There's often a lot there that's good. And it can make it hard to walk away from someone who's been abusive. If abusers were just repulsive, terrible, awful people with no redeeming qualities No one would ever wind up in a relationship with someone who was abusive. So that you see good there, that there were some things about this relationship that you miss is common. You need to grieve that. You need to grieve that with the help of a therapist. I hope you're in therapy yourself right now because you need to find the strength to end this relationship once and for all to block him and have nothing to do with him in the future, even if he gets into therapy, even if he gets better, even if he gets himself to a place, perhaps motivated by your rejection of him by the end of this relationship, where he can be healthy, where he can have a functional relationship and not be abusive. And that is possible. People can get there. I still don't think he should have that relationship with you. What you're telling yourself is there might not be anybody else out there that you'll feel this way about, that it's just him. That is a lie. That is a lie that some part of your reptile brain or subconscious mind is telling you in order to rationalize getting back into this relationship, which you know you shouldn't do. There are other men out there 3.5, 4 billion ish men on the planet. You can meet someone else, even if you never meet anybody else that you feel this strongly about, even if you're alone for the rest of your life. Better to be alone. Than to be in an abusive relationship. <sighs> so send him the shit that you found that he needs to have no return address and then block him, block his email, block his phone numbers, have nothing to do with him and then get out there, meet some more people and then see, see if you don't meet somebody else that you can fall in love with, that could happen. But even if that doesn't happen, you can build a life for yourself That's rich and meaningful and rewarding, even if you're single all your life or single for parts of your life, as most of us are in adulthood. But you can't take this guy back. You can't, and you know it. So I'm just reinforcing what the higher functioning part of your brain is telling you right now, which is to end this. He's no better than he was, he hasn't gotten help. You're already seeing signs in his emails that he's as jealous and controlling and manipulative and abusive as he was when you were together with him. So it's over. Stick the dismount block, block,
5: block. Good morning, Dan. I'm a 33 year old gay man living in uh, Tampa. And I'm currently in a long distance relationship with a man that doesn't exactly, seem to have a very good, I don't know, relationship or demonstrative, um, you know, emotional compass. And recently I've discovered that he's kind of been leading a double life and being that way toward men that he hasn't even met on, uh, you know, on Instagram and WhatsApp. And, you know, just talking to these men In ways that I could only wish that he would talk to me. I have found myself a few times now kind of becoming like that jealous, steaming, raging, you know, bitchy partner. And we eventually just kind of broke it off because I didn't want to continue to be that person. You know, I I wanted to be able to actually enjoy my life instead of obsessing with feeling like I wasn't enough for him and He asked to get back into a relationship. I kind of obliged and decided that I was going to give him another chance because I was still in love with him. Later on, I kind of discovered that he's still kind of up to the same thing. He's just kind of gotten better at hiding it. You know, I don't want to sit here with the woe is me bullshit. But God, man, I really, really love this guy. And I I just can't see myself. Being poly under duress, I know that this is where this, you know, our relationship is headed because I've heard him on several occasions talk about sex with other men. Sometimes he'll ask me to look for men to, you know, make sex videos with and send them to him. Most of the time, those guys aren't really my type. And I, honestly, I just, I don't know what to do at this point. I don't know how to dump this motherfucker already. Like, I really love him, but I'm not sure that he's good for my mental moving on. I mean, I have, like, a humongous emotional bandwidth for people, and being that empath just kind of makes me put up with their bullshit until, like, I can't take it anymore. So I don't know. I mean, do I, like, take the journey into learning how to be poly— so that he could get his needs met? Or do I just call it quits and go after the men that just want me for me?
2: Okay. Okay. You love him. That's not enough in the absence of sexual compatibility. If you're going to have a romantic and sexual relationship with this guy, who you are sexually, what makes you comfortable, what makes you happy, what makes you feel secure, doesn't mesh well with who he is sexually, what he wants sexually. So yeah, he's still who he was the first time you broke up with him. He likes to get on the internet, the anonymity of the internet frees him. He talks to other men in ways that you say he wished he talked to you. And what I think you mean by that is you wish that all of his sexual energy was directed at you, that you were the exclusive focus of his sexual interests and fantasies. And that's just not the case. It's not who he is. So what are you going to do? Well, you're not going to make the self-identified empath mistake of telling yourself that you can't end this relationship if the only thing that's not working is sex or that you failed if you can't make it work or make him work or fix him or cure him, that you aren't the empath that you've told yourself that you are. You don't have the emotional skills that you've led yourself to believe that you do. You can't fix what isn't broken. The way he expresses himself sexually different than how you express yourself sexually different from what you would like or be most comfortable with in your sexual partner doesn't mean he's broken, doesn't mean you can fix him, doesn't mean you're broken, just means you're fundamentally and basically sexually incompatible and is not going to change He can go to some effort to hide it from you, if that's what he feels he has to do to keep you in his life. And you can suspend your disbelief and pretend, when he is successfully hiding it from you, that he isn't who you always knew him to be, sexually. But in the end, yeah there's going to be a crack up. He's going to ask you for sex videos, or you're going to find out he's created a new Instagram account where he's flirting with people in your area or people that you know. And it's just going to be a never ending shit show because you're trying to change something about him. That's never going to change. And he's wanting you to be someone you're never going to be. So as much as you like him, as much as you love him, As sad as it might be that there's this conflict that makes it impossible for you two to remain in this relationship, that's just the fact. That's the fact. You're just going to have to end it. And ending it doesn't mean it was a failure. You can be better for the time you spent with him. You can walk away from this relationship uh, still friends, just not together. Maybe you'd be better friends. Maybe you could even be flirty friends who chit-chat with each other about sex once you let go of the expectations of what it means to be each other's primary romantic or exclusive romantic partners. Maybe there's a friendship you can salvage here, and maybe not. But you know what there isn't here? There isn't a love match. You guys are sexually incompatible. You're going to have to call it.
6: Hey, Dan. So I have had a lot of unhealthy relationships in my life, and I'm now in one that I finally feel is stable and is healthy, and we've been together for about 14 months, and my question is, it isn't extremely exciting. I am not super interested in all the things that he has to talk about We do have, you know, some things in common that we both enjoy. It's just not the things that I'm most engaged with. And the sex is fine. He's really, you know, GGG, just not extremely kinky. um, But he is open to doing things that I'm interested in. There's just not a lot of initiative on his part there on trying new things. I guess my question is, is the lack of excitement and the thrill due to it being a healthy relationship? Or is it just that maybe we're not the right fit? Having never been in a healthy, stable relationship, I guess I'm not sure what that necessarily looks like. I could definitely see myself being with him, you know, for a long time and being relatively happy. And is is that enough, or does it need to be exciting? Or is exciting the tumultuous part of relationships?
2: Healthy relationships can be exciting, and exciting relationships can be healthy. This relationship isn't very exciting. You sound kind of like he bores you, and you're over-determining things here. You're assuming because your first healthy relationship is one that kind of bores you that this must be a quality shared by all healthy relationships. You have a sample size of one, a frame of reference of one, and you're projecting out onto all healthy relationships. What you know about this one healthy relationship that you're in, that it's kind of boring. And I'm here to tell you, it's not boring because healthy relationships are boring. It's boring because this guy that you're in a healthy relationship with kind of bores you. So what do you do? Well, You know, excitement tends to diminish over time. That's why there's so much writing out there in sex advice land about keeping the spark alive. People do get bored in LTRs. I'm often telling people, there's a whole chapter in my new book, uh, that, you know, at the start of the relationship, you're the adventure they're on, and they're the adventure you're on. And to feel that sense of adventure, that spark again, you as a couple have to decide to go on adventures together. You have to manufacture adventure to feel that same degree of excitement that you felt. Just the first time you got undressed with someone that you just met, that you are just getting to know, that you just invited over to your apartment on a hookup app, that first time you just got naked in front of them, it was scary and thrilling and the adrenaline was pumping. And the 400,000th time you get undressed in front of that person, yeah, not scary, not thrilling, adrenaline isn't pumping. But we miss that feeling of adrenaline pumping and everything else pumping. And so we got to induce it. We have to acknowledge to each other as a couple, hey, we're kind of bored. Let's shake things up. That usually comes in time. And there's usually a nice period at the beginning of effortless excitement and adventure and connection. And it doesn't sound like that's really characterized this relationship. Now, settling down always means settling for. If you want to be with one person, one person can't be all things to you, sexually, intellectually, emotionally, socially, so long as your partner doesn't bore you endlessly on topics that you don't really give a shit about, that they go find other friends, other people to be in their life that they can talk with about whatever it is that you're just not interested in. Uh, And so long as they don't try to prevent you from cultivating relationships with other people, non-sexual relationships, if this is a sexually exclusive relationship, you can definitely make this work. Sometimes it's really great for very different people with very different interests to be together, not to shove their interests down each other's throats endlessly and tediously, but to get out there in the world and do the shit that they enjoy and talk about the shit that obsesses them with other people who enjoy and obsess about it and then come home to the person who loves them, who's there for them and isn't threatened by them having those kinds of relationships with other people, getting those kinds of needs met by other people. So, yeah, this is your first healthy relationship and you're bored. I don't want to encourage you to end the first good, healthy relationship that you're in. But I got to tell you, you could find other partners that you had a healthy connection with, you had good, stable relationships with that excited you more, that you had more in common with, more to talk about, who didn't bore the fuck out of you, who had sexual interests and needs that they threw out there on the table that you were excited to meet. They just weren't meeting your needs endlessly and maybe be less bored by But to make yourself available to one of those other people, to go out there and have that kind of relationship, you're going to have to end this one. And that's scary. scary to think about. You know, your first healthy relationship, the first guy that you feel safe with, perhaps emotionally and sexually, than all the other guys you've been with in the past, ending that for some guy to be named later, guy to be found later that might be better in some respects, more interesting to talk about shit over dinner with, more interesting in the sack it's scary but to find that guy means you got to let go of this guy
0: hey dan question how to really top somebody really dom somebody not bdsm dom but you know kind of light i guess stuff like restraints um holding down being forceful telling the person what they can and can't do while we're in the act of sex I don't know I just don't I feel kind of like I'm acting while I'm doing it and it, that makes me feel inauthentic so it doesn't really feel sexy to me because I think authenticity and vulnerability is quite sexy and because I yeah because I see that as not being authentic it doesn't feel sexy to me um I'm not like a super duper bottom I'm mask looking lesbian, non-binary, just sort of coming out non-binary. But yeah, I don't have, I'm on top a lot, but I don't really, I'm not forcefully on top or dominating somebody. And I just was wondering if you or any of your listeners have any tips about where I can start and how to not feel like I'm acting when I'm telling the person what I want them to or not to do. Yeah, I mean, we have safe word and stuff. So like I know the other day she kind of was like, oh, we didn't need to stop. Then you didn't need to sort of ask me if I was okay. If I wasn't, I would have used a safe word. So I'm just too nice, I think. I don't even know. I'm always checking in. (laughs) It's not sexy when you want to be kind of controlled. So help,
2: please. You don't need my help. You're already getting the best kind of help from the person you're dating. You're getting feedback continue to solicit that feedback. What you need to do, it might help if you're trying to establish a DS relationship, is there are times you declare a timeout from the DS dynamic, and that person, your sub, is empowered to say anything, to critique your performance, to tell you what they wished you'd done, and you will file that away. And then not be destroyed by it. You're building a dynamic together. You're creating a little play together. That's why they call it play. And you need their input. You need their feedback to do that successfully, to feel confident that you're doing it successfully, that you're meeting their needs while also, if you enjoy topping, getting your own jollies off, right? Getting your own rocks off. If you want to do a little reading, I would suggest the new topping book by Dossie Easton and Janet Hardy. It is a classic It has helped a lot of people, particularly people who have partners with submissive fantasies, who never saw themselves as dominant, uh, explore what it means to be dominant. And one last piece of advice from a really kick-ass sex educator who you also might want to look up, Maduri. she's been on the show a lot, is that often for dominant women uh, or dominant people, dominant non-binary people, dominant gay men, What you need to ask yourself in the moment is what do you want as the dom? What do you want from the sub? It's often what the sub desires in a scene is to meet the top's needs. So what you want can be very simple. It doesn't have to be about reading the sub's mind and wanting to give the sub exactly what they want in that moment. If you want a foot massage, if you want your ass ate, if you want to see your sub kiss your boots, whatever it is that you want in that moment, ask for it. And then, of course, outside of scenes, declare timeouts from your DS dynamic if it's 24-7 and have honest conversations where your performance can be critiqued, where suggestions can be made. And you also get to offer your critiques and make asks and suggestions of your own and then work on it. But honest to God, you're already getting the best kind of feedback, which is feedback from your sub. The trick if you're doming someone when your sub gives you feedback is not to feel undermined as a dom, feel armed. Your sub is giving you the information that you need to dominate them in a way that works for them and works for you too. Oh, and one last thing, you can be a polite top. You can be a polite dom. You can be a solicitous dom in a scene continually getting your sub's consent. It can be, you know, get on Twitter. There are a lot of people posting DS scenes, DS play to Twitter. Find some tops whose work you admire on Twitter. And often what you'll find if it's a good verbal top is a lot of banter, a lot of you want this, don't you? And that can be a solicitation in the moment of ongoing consent, of permission to continue going in a certain direction that might be working for that sub at that moment. Yeah, nothing wrong with being a polite courteous top. You can have a sense of humor. You can ask the sub questions. You don't have to wait for a timeout to get feedback. You can get feedback in the moment. It doesn't have to undermine your DS dynamic.
7: Hi, Dan. This is one of your listeners. I'm calling because I um, am a trans guy. I've been single for a year and um, I just had top surgery and I'm, like, ready to get out there, but I haven't dated since transitioning, and I'm having a lot of trouble figuring out what apps are good for dating. Should I move to New York City if I want to date? I don't know. I live in Philly, and there are definitely queer people here, but I'm just not really sure. So if you know anything about best ways to go about dating as like, a bisexual trans guy who maybe passes like 70% of the time, not 100, uh, that would be great.
2: You don't have to move to New York city to date as an out trans person. Lots of out trans people dating in cities, big and small all over the country. And I'm here to tell you that all the apps are terrible. Everyone seems to be in unanimous agreement that all the apps are terrible Everybody feels that way because everybody's been badly treated by somebody on the apps or gotten grief or had a string of bad luck. And so, yeah, everyone thinks the apps are terrible until that moment when an app works for them. I would encourage you to think about that moment as you slog through messages from people that you're not interested in dating or people who say the wrong thing or even people who say shitty things and you block them. Just remember that somebody's going to pop up on one of those platforms and you should just get on as many of them as you want to, who you're going to click with. And then you'll look back on that app and you'll probably feel a little bit differently about it. But if you get out there and say, hey, everybody, what do you think of OKCupid? Or what do you think of Grindr? Or what do you think of Too Many Fish? Or what do you think of Christian or Farmers Only? You'll hear from people who had bad experiences that they're terrible, And Everyone feels every app is terrible until, of course, the app, one of them, gets them something that doesn't feel so terrible that they're happy to have in their lives after all. The best way to get out there and date uh, is to be honest about who you are and where you're at because the person you want to attract right now, the person you want to bring into your life is someone who is into you for who you are and where you're at. So just put it out there. Recently completed my transition out trans by guy, looking to dip my toe back into dating and hooking up. And then you'll hear from people who are open to you. And hopefully you'll hear from some people who are sensitive to where you're at right now, who would be honored to be the first person that you went on a date with. You might hear from some people who fetishize you. You don't have to go on a date with those people. You might hear from some people who are shitty, who give you grief. You don't have to give those people your time or attention. You don't have to engage with them. You just have to block them. And then, yeah, then you'll meet somebody. And don't go into do it with a scarcity mindset. We had a trans man on the show recently who got on Grindr for the first time and was a little overwhelmed by all of the positive messages that he was getting from gay men who were open to hooking up with or dating a trans guy. And I called him back because I wanted to ask him if he got any grief because, you know, some people are assholes and gay men are people and some gay men are assholes. And he hadn't gotten any grief, which I thought was a really good sign. So take the risk. Put yourself out there. It is the only way that you'll meet someone or meet people that you want to be with and who want to be with you, but they can't want to be with you if they don't know who you are or where you're at. So tell them, tell them exactly who you are and where you're at. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with Dr. Daniel Grossman, a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of California San Francisco. Dr. Grossman is the co-author of an editorial published in the journal BMJ Sexual and Reproductive Health calling for, quote, the advanced provision of abortion medications in the United States, something I called for recently at the top of the Savage Lovecast. Dr. Grossman also directs a policy-oriented research program called Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health and he provides patient care including abortion care at San Francisco General Hospital. Hey Dr. Grossman, thank you so much for coming on the show.
8: Thank you so much for inviting me. So can you quickly walk
2: us through medication abortion or medical abortion, how it works, how you pronounce the names of those drugs, and how we know it's safe?
8: Sure. Um, so medication abortion, or I guess I should say the, the the most effective and commonly used medication abortion regimen that we use in clinics involves two pills. The first one is called misopristone, and that pill is just swallowed normally. And then the second Medication is called misoprostol. And the most common way that that's administered is to take four pills and they're put buccally, which is in this like in the cheek pocket between your cheek and teeth and your gums, and let them sit there for 30 minutes and, and dissolve and then swallow what's left. And then, and it's used up through about 10 or 11 weeks of pregnancy. And within a couple hours after taking the misoprostol, um, people start bleeding and then expel the pregnancy. So the first pill, mifepristone, works by blocking the hormone called progesterone, which is really important early in pregnancy. And by blocking it, it starts to thin out the lining of the uterus and causes pregnancy to, to start to separate from the lining of the uterus. And then the second pill causes the cervix to open up and for the causes the, the uterus to start to contract and expels the pregnancy.
2: So I've heard this described as a kind of induced medical miscarriage.
8: Yeah, from a medical perspective, it's very similar. Of, of course, patients experience miscarriage very differently from how they experience an induced abortion. But yeah, from a medical perspective, and in terms of what's happening in someone's body, it's yeah, it's very similar.
2: So i I opened my show recently urging people, particularly people in red states, to stock up and people in blue states and even like gay men like me to stock up. I have a niece who's growing up in a red state. I want to be able to help her out if need be. And you wrote an editorial on how this might work in practice, sort of normalizing people having these pills on hand have have events overtaken? Your editorial in my opening rant, the headline everywhere, FDA will permanently allow abortion pills by mail. Are we in a different climate now? And when the FDA says they're going to do that permanently, does that mean permanently, permanently or permanently until we have another Republican president?
8: (laughs) Those are all really great questions. The big caveat to the permanent change is that it isn't going to have much impact for people who are living in states that have already passed laws that ban the use of telemedicine or mailing these medications for abortion. So in Texas, this change by the FDA is not going to make a difference because they have actually a few laws that ban the use of telemedicine and and mailing um, pills for medication abortion. About 19 states have laws banning the use of telemedicine for medication abortion. So in fact, this change from the FDA, it's definitely going to make a difference for for people who are living in states where telehealth and pharmacists dispensing a mifepristone is allowed, but for people in states with limited access, and particularly in states that you know are going to be really severely affected if the Supreme Court next summer essentially overturns Roe v. Wade, those people aren't going to reap the benefit that's from this decision that the FDA just made.
2: Fuck Texas. You can get an assault rifle in a vending machine, and they're going to pass a law or they have passed a law that makes telemedicine, at least in the case of this kind of reproductive health care, illegal. But is are, are those laws enforceable? How are they going to stop uh, women from getting online, doing a little telemedicine, and having a pill put in an envelope or these two pills, this medical regimen, shipped to them in Dallas or uh, Houston without instituting a kind of police state where they're opening everyone's mail?
8: Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know how they're going to do it. We do know that about, we're aware of about 25 people or so who have been arrested or criminally investigated for allegedly self-managing their abortion or helping someone else in a variety of states. I'm not sure that there's been a case in Texas yet, but I do worry that particularly if Roe versus Wade is, is overturned and half half the states lose access to safe and legal abortion, that we are going to see more criminalization of people who are self-managing their abortions. And we know the populations that are most heavily surveilled in this country are black and brown people. And so it's going to be those folks who are going to be most likely to be criminalized, um, people living on low incomes who are going to be more likely to be targeted.
2: So the title of your editorial that, that you were the co-author of, Making the Case for the Advanced Provision of, and I'm going to mispronounce these words because I do every time. It's a crazy burden when you read words over and over again before you ever hear someone say them out loud. How you were reading them in your head is how you are going to say them for the rest of your life, even if they're correctly pronounced You at some point. Making the case for the advanced provision of, Mifepristone and Misoprostol for abortion in the United States. Um, That's pretty good.
8: (laughs) Well, thank you. Uh, So (laughs) so
2: make the case. Make the case for the advanced provision of these
8: drugs. Well, first of all, I mean, just to say, like, this is not something that's, really so new in medicine overall or in reproductive health you know before emergency contraception or the morning after pill became available over the counter we used to give people prescriptions for emergency contraception or actually give them the pills we still do that for the the type of ec that requires a prescription so because it made sense to have these medicines on hand to use in case you had an episode of unprotected sex and and needed to take them as quickly as possible. And this is the same kind of situation, particularly, I mean, if someone is living in a state where they have a very narrow window to access abortion care.
2: Or the nearest abortion clinic is hundreds and hundreds of miles away or in another state.
8: Exactly. It makes sense to have this this medicine um, on hand. You know, it's important that people understand that that these pills are not for everyone. So they're not recommended for people who are past about 11 weeks of pregnancy, Um, people who have certain medical conditions like a bleeding disorder or who take certain medications like blood thinners. They're not good candidates for medication abortion. Many of those things, um, like the medical conditions or the medicines that people take, don't change so much over time. So a clinician could potentially screen someone for some of those conditions ahead of time, at the time that they're providing these medications in advance and, um, of course, tell people that they need to also be screened again right before they before they take the pills. You know, people need to know about the possible rare complications, like how much bleeding is too much and what might be signs of an infection or an ectopic pregnancy. They need to think about where they would go if they did have a complication. You know, most emergency departments are perfectly well-equipped to take care of patients who have complications in early pregnancy, and they should be able to care for patients with abortion-related complications. So that's some of the information that I think it's really critical clinicians who do give the the medications to patients in advance you know talk about with their patients and then finally I, I envision this as kind of like a whole wraparound service where clinicians would also encourage the patients who do decide to eventually use the pills that they can always call and follow up with the with the clinic to you know, confirm that it, it's still okay for them to take the pills and then ask questions if they, um, you know, are concerned about any symptoms they might have.
2: If people want to stock up in advance uh, with these pills, uh, get them, lay them in, in case the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. And then in a lot of these states, there are laws that snap into effect banning abortion, banning tel- this kind of telemedicine. Uh, if the Supreme Court should overturn Roe v. Wade. How long can someone keep these pills on hand? How what, What's their shelf life?
8: So a little, It depends a little bit on the specific product, but um, my understanding is that in general, the mifepristone um, pills are labeled with an expiration date at about five years into the future, and then the misoprostol pills generally about two years. The misoprostal pills in particular are very sensitive to um, humidity. So they usually come in like the blister packs. And if the blister pack is damaged at all, then that, um, that shelf life could get really shortened. But um, as long as the package isn't damaged, then uh, the misoprostal pills should last for about two years.
2: These are scary times. I do want to point out that you're a dude. I'm a dude. I'm a gay man. You're a gay man. We're having this conversation about... Reproductive health services, primarily for women, for some handful of non binary or trans men. I care very passionately about this issue and its connection to gay rights, to bodily autonomy, seems obvious to me. But there are a lot of gay men out there who don't think this is about us or implicates us or or that we should care about it. You obviously care about it very much.
8: I do. I mean, I have a personal connection too. I am the co-parent of two amazing young women. I formed a family with, with two wonderful lesbian women. I'm really committed to ensuring that that my kids and their friends and their generation retain access, you know, to the full range of reproductive health care, including safe abortion. And I also recognize, you know, that I was able to form this family that I wanted when I wanted because of my privilege and You know, I believe that everyone, regardless of their race, ethnicity, gender identity, sexual orientation, income, or certainly wherever they live, they should have that same right. And of course, as you pointed out too, I mean, if you think they're only, that the right is only going after abortion and they're not going to go after gay marriage or, you know, any of these other rights that on some level are also based on a right to privacy, I mean, you're really deeply mistaken, I think
2: they're going to come for abortion and then they're going to stick around to undo Griswold versus Connecticut, which legalized the right to contraception. They're going to undo Lawrence v. Texas if they can get away with it, which decriminalized sodomy and not just gay sodomy, which is what everyone thinks of when you hear the word sodomy, they think of buttfucking. Uh, sodomy is any sex act that isn't open to reproduction, which includes straight oral sex, also straight sex with contraception and People who don't see their agenda in its totality are fooling themselves, are kidding themselves, are in denial about the implications here. I would be for protecting the rights of women to control their own reproductive health care, whether or not I looked further down the road and saw my own rights to, to be married or to be sexual on the line. Or targeted by the same people, but still the inability of some gay men to see that we have a common enemy here in the religious right, these fundamentalist Christian conservatives, these right wingers on the Supreme Court, uh, a common enemy with women and other people with uteruses drives me up a wall, makes me crazy. I get emails whenever I talk about it on the show from gay men who are like, none of my business. Why should I care? And it makes me nuts.
8: Well, I really appreciate you. Highlighting why this why we need to care because it's so important. I think you know people who are looking for ways to help right now. In addition to learning more about um, abortion pills, I would just really encourage them to support their local abortion fund or a fund that's operating in Texas or another state with limited access. Your abortion funds provide financial and logistic support to patients who are seeking abortion care. They help them pay for the procedure, They help them pay for travel. Um, they're already playing a critical role in helping people who are living on low incomes access abortion care. And they're going to be playing an even more important role as access becomes more constrained. And you know they're going to be helping people get from one state to another um, where they can access legal care. So I really encourage people to go to the website of the National Network of Abortion Funds to find a fund to, to donate to.
2: Terry and I make a monthly donation to that fund, to the national, uh, to the one you decided. Terry's always posting about it to Instagram and encouraging other people, uh, including other gay men, lots of the gay men who follow him, to make donations to that organization or one of them. And uh, so I completely endorse and support and uh, uh, that, and I'm glad you brought it up. That's great. So, uh, Dr. Grossman, uh, people who are interested in reading your editorial on the case for advanced provision of myfipristone and mysoprostol, uh, where can they find You me? got it.
8: <laughs> <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Dr. D. Grossman, G-R-O-S-S-M-A-N. You can also go to my research program at the University of California, San Francisco, it is answer, A N S I R H. .org um, and find the article there. Well,
2: thank you so much for coming on. I hope you'll come
8: back on the show sometime. Thank you so much for having me.
9: Hey, Lovecast fam. I am a young 30-something-year-old, mostly hetero woman on the West Coast. I am in a relationship with somebody who started out as a friend, a romantic relationship, with somebody who started out as a friend maybe five years ago. We became very, 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 very best friends a little over two years ago. And then, of course, started dating, said, it's fucking, after falling in love about a year ago. The main reason we didn't fuck for so long during our initial best friendship was because we have a lot of differences of opinion and lifestyle and worldview. One of them being that I'm non-monogamous and she is very much monogamous and holds a lot of traditional ideals. Why I loved this person as a friend and very much love him as a a romantic partner now is largely because he's very compassionate, very patient, empathetic, open to discourse, even though we hold many different ideas concerning things like what I consider, I don't know, basically gender roles, gender rights, um, all kinds of human rights issues. He's, like I said, a kind person and that does come across in these conversations, but I Some of the things he says still does infuriate me. And as if our non-monogamy monogamy monogamy mismatch weren't enough, he will sometimes say things like tonight when we were passing a sex worker on the street and a comment was made just about, oh, it's a sex worker. And somebody pulled up right as we were passing to let her in the car. And I cheered because uh, the sex worker got work and it's a rainy cold night. And um, my partner, who does not believe in prostitution, as I don't know if it's ethics or health or whatever, but he does not believe in it as like a positive or and or viable um, job option. I would say more positive than anything. And um, he's like, no, what? He was like, I think it's bad that that she got somebody to pick her up. What if she gets an STI? And his reaction um, blew me up, and he's incredibly hurt that I would choose to react so strongly and um, I do this so often to some of the things that he says that he is rightfully worried that it will be the end of us and that embitters him and um, I don't want it to be the end of us.
2: Non-monogamous, monogamous, monogamous, that's a big conflict potentially. That's a major area of sexual incompatibility. That said, there's lots of people out there who would like to be in non-monogamous relationships who have made and are Honoring monogamous commitments, at least for the time being. You could be one of those people. A lot of people make that difference work. As for the rest of it, you say he's compassionate, patient, empathetic, and then you make him sound like Augusto Pinochet. (laughs) You make him sound he's against human rights, at least as you define them. And you don't go very much into where these points of disagreement are. You describe him as a conservative. The example you cite, though, I'm afraid you're gonna blow up at me because I'm kind of, sort of on his side. I am pro sex work. I am not excited though about sex workers who are forced to do street prostitution. That is inherently dangerous. It's one of the reasons why FOSTA-SESTA is so terrible. Chasing sex workers off the internet is so terrible. It's because it pushes sex workers out onto the streets where they're more vulnerable to exploitation, danger, shitty clients, Sex workers, when they're online, can vet a client. A sex worker on a corner waiting for someone to pull up in a car, unless it's a prearranged date with a pre-vetted client, yeah, can't do the vetting that a sex worker can do online. So street prostitution is a thing. Not all sex workers have access to the internet. But yeah, when I see street prostitution, when I see sex workers who are outside looking for clients. My first impulse when I see a client pull up isn't, yay, you got work. My first impulse is, "Oi, I hope you're going to be okay. I hope you don't get, my first impulse really is to cross myself, which I've actually done on street corners watching sex workers jump into cars. So I'm sort of, I'm not entirely on his side, I'm not on his side at all, on pro-sex work, but I'm not entirely on your side either. I wouldn't have cheered Uh, at what I witnessed if I had been with you guys as a very strange third wheel on your date. I wouldn't have cheered for that. I would have identified that as evidence of a broader social problem chasing sex workers off the internet and forcing sex workers onto the streets where they are at greater risk. So, uh, I guess where I come down is I just wish I had some more examples of the conflicts with your boyfriend around social issues or human rights, your compassionate, patient, empathetic boyfriend who is somewhere to the right of Augusto Pinochet. There you go, kids. There's another 40, 50 year old pop political culture reference for you. Enjoy. Go Google that. Because I wonder if you have really thought through all of your positions. I don't think that your position on street prostitution was as informed or nuanced as it could have been, as it should be. So I wonder what some of this other conflict is about, but if he's talking and if he's kind and compassionate and empathetic and he's willing to listen and hear you out and you're willing to maybe get a little bit more informed if you're not as informed as you could be on everything, and you guys can have an exchange of ideas. Maybe you can make this work. You're already making this work. You don't need my help to make this work. You are already making this work. So yeah, keep talking, keep fucking. Maybe don't cheer for a sex worker when you see him climb into a car. Maybe cross yourself like I would do at that moment.
10: Hi, Dan. Early 30s caller from the Midwest. Trigger warning, there's a little sexual assault mentioned in this one. Basically, just sort of have a question about how the fuck to, like, move on. So a couple of months ago, I was raped by some asshole that just completely took advantage of me when I was drunk after a friend's birthday dinner, and it was awful. And But, you know, thankfully, I, like, really don't remember that much because I was too drunk. And, like, what I do remember was it's it's enough. And any time I, you know, thoughts creep back in, I just like shut my eyes real tight and just like shove the feelings back down. In sort of an effort to like regain a little bit of my bodily autonomy and to like not always associate sex, which I love, with rape, I have started dating again and like I've been really lucky and the first person that I've met online like met in real life has been fucking awesome. Like just really great. It's honestly I've been just so lucky. But, you know, the the first night we went out we boned because that's my fucking prerogative. And, you know, I didn't tell him about the assault cause it didn't seem appropriate or relevant and whatever. And like, we had a great time, but the problems keep <laughs> have like persisted since then. So, you know, one of the next times we, we boned, um, it was like right after I got my booster shot and I invited him over to hang out and, and whatever. And I was like, I wasn't feeling side effects yet, but I was feeling very horny. So <laughs> we started like fooling around on my bed. And, like, both being totally stone sober, I didn't realize how much that would make my true feelings come up. So we were hooking up, and I was on top. My legs were getting tired. I was starting to feel my, you know, booster shot side effects. And I think he could tell I was getting tired. And he just goes, like, hey, we can stop if you want. And then I was, like, yeah, I think I do. And I hopped off, and I, like, start, you know wanted to finish him off and he was like um you know that you don't have to do that like you stopped having sex and you clearly don't want to like it's fine and then I just started crying because I had forgotten that like consent is a thing and that I'm you know worthy of respect and whatever it was just so many feelings at once um and like I've cried a couple more times having sex and basically my question is like I I just want to move forward and I just, I don't know how to do this without these little blips occurring. And like, this isn't going to be my defining thing. I I just would very much like some advice about how to
11: move on.
2: I hope you're talking with a therapist too, not just a potty mouth sex advice podcast host.
11: (laughs) I am talking with a therapist too. Thank you for checking.
2: Uh, Okay, good, good, good. Um, because all I wanted to call and say is like you say you want to move forward, but what it sounds like—it's only been a couple of months. It sounds like you're still moving mm-hmm. through it, and that has to be okay.
11: Yeah, yeah. I think generally speaking, I'm a pretty anxious person, and I just try to do things quickly. So,
2: yeah, um, this isn't something yeah. you can rush. <laughs> yeah, that is true. And I'm really glad that you seem to have found. I mean, not a perfect person, but a good person for now, the right person for right now. Everything that mm-hmm. the guy that you were having sex with said in the moment seemed to be exactly what you needed to hear. And you were so touched to hear it that you were moved, moved to tears yeah. by, by his grace and his lack of selfishness in that moment. And a lot of guys would have accepted that handjob from you. And I don't think that that impulse was necessarily <laughs> a betrayal You know, you're messing around with somebody, you fall out of it, you don't feel it. It can be like the kind and courteous thing to do to get them off, you know, in a Mm -hmm. way that doesn't require too much of you. But in that moment, what you needed to hear was, I have no expectations and you aren't required to do anything right now. Mm -hmm. And how beautiful that that you found that.
11: Absolutely. And I, I think it's also like, you know, my impulse to do that is sort of indicative to my general sex drive and just sort of being confronted with how things are changing and now I just like I don't really want to do that in the there at this very moment so it was it was nice to not be almost feel required to do that
2: right you don't want to be burdened by other people's expectations uh, maybe you even need a I mean it's a little weird I mean I don't want to say it quite like this cuz it sounds weird coming out of my <laughs> mouth I'm not saying it's weird that you saying this but like to get permission from a male partner in that moment to basically shove aside the way you were socialized as a woman to always meet the man's needs and never disappoint a, a, a male partner
11: oh my god yes
2: was kind of empowering kind of a gift it's a gift most people i think most women ultimately give themselves and there's nothing wrong that you may have gotten it in that moment from this manic pixie dream guy but I think that's he is why, a manic pixie dream guy. Oh my god. And I think that's why you <laughs> cried. Like you're yeah. I worry that you're attaching sadness or or negatives to the release of the tears in that moment. And I think that you mm-hmm. can see it from a slightly different angle and regard it as something as a breakthrough, something joyful and empowering even if it dredged up a powerful feeling.
11: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely it's just a lot to work through, like you said, and not work past.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You say you want to move forward, but you know, it's a rocky path and you're going to have to, to walk it to, to to move forward. And you are, you are. Mm -hmm. And don't regard the tears and the powerful feelings that you're having in the moment while you're being sexual as a setback, but as a step.
11: Absolutely. I just don't always want to be like this forever. I very much want to get back to, person I've become, (laughs) you
2: know,
11: a lot, a lot by listening to your podcast.
2: (laughs) And you will, you will, but you're forever, you know, we're always forever changed by our experiences Mm -hmm. and our traumas and we carry them forward and we learn to walk with them, but they're always a part of who we are. So if you set as a goal for yourself, expunging this or
8: Mm
2: -hmm. never sort of, being triggered ever again, or having these feelings of being overwhelmed because of the way you were violated, you're setting yourself up for failure, right? You have right. to be as generous with yourself at those moments as this guy was that you just met. Right. You should be able to do that for That's yourself. The too. Part. Yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it is hard when you're impatient and in a hurry. And I'm not equating the two experiences, but man, after my mother died, I was such a wreck for so long and was, it was really hard for me to be sexual in the moment because it was all I could think about, right? And then I got frustrated right. with that. I still think about my mother's death all the time, but I'm not derailed by it in the same way that I was in those first few months. This only happened two months ago. Yeah. You need to be kinder and a little bit more patient and generous with yourself, so that you don't set yourself back.
11: Yeah, yeah, you're right. That's just kind of been one of my biggest hurdles: is just forgiving myself for what happened to me.
2: Well, obviously, mm-hmm. what happened to you was not anything you did. You were violated. But the the the, the thing is, when we rush, we stumble, and you can't rush mm-hmm. this.
11: Right. No, you can't.
2: And I just want to put a button in the fact that you know, a couple months after this happened, you got online looking for someone to mess around with and you know we always talk we always hear about when the internet delivers the wrong person to uh someone you know someone who's shitty or manipulative or violent we rarely hear about when the internet brings kind of the right person to someone and it sounds like the internet did that for you
11: it's kind of wild isn't it
2: kind of great that's why i wanted to put a button he's in it
11: continuing to be really really incredible <laughs> I,
2: I'm, I'm glad you found him which is not to say that like he's chemotherapy he's healing you right. you brought him in you went and found him you Absolutely. recognized in him what it was that you needed or still want right now and that he's the right person to be with you at this moment you're doing this he's not doing it
11: and I'm definitely not putting the onus of any of my like recovery or healing or anything on him. It's, he's just sort of like a, he's a nice to have in addition to all of the other steps that I am taking towards, you know, recovery, I guess. Yeah, I don't know if that's yeah. the right word.
2: Which is why I'm glad you're in therapy. Yes. I'm glad you called. Wonderful person. <laughs> and yeah, I just want to leave you with like, when we rush, when we hurry ourselves, we stumble. Don't hurry yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay.
11: Thank you so much for calling Dan. I really appreciate it. Happy holidays.
2: Give my regards to the manic pixie dream boy.
11: I sure
7: will. Thank you. Okay, bye. Hi Dan. I am 30. I live in the Midwest and I think I'm going to break up with my long-term partner. There have been some things over the past few years that have should have been red flags to me. Well, He's recently done some things that have been very concerning to me. And um, although he has not physically hit me, there are many conversations where I will be mocked, basically mocking my tone of voice, my words, even recently saying things like, well, you do you and let everyone else do you too. So I didn't really know how to take that. And it's, recently been getting rough and I think now that I'm in my 30s I'm getting to the point where I know my worth now and I really really do love him but he absolutely outright refuses to go to therapy he will not go to therapy and he's dealing with the same kind of childhood trauma that I am so that, that's just hard I know that but uh, I don't know what to do so <laughs> I don't know I, I'm a little worried that when I, if I were to do that and you know, like move to a different room in our house that we're still renting, then at that point, like he might have to go and live with his mom or something. And he doesn't deserve that. But I, I don't know what to do, and I'm lost. But I feel like I do deserve to be treated better. And he's told me that he won't treat me any better.
2: Don't take that shit from him. Leave that. Leave him. Leave the shit that he is. He won't get his ass into therapy with you there. Maybe he'll get his ass into therapy once you break up with him, once he realizes that there are consequences, there are prices he's going to pay if he doesn't work on himself and become a better, less emotionally abusive person. But you are required to date this guy for the rest of his life to protect him from the consequences of his own assholery. You say that if you break up with him, he might have to move back in with his mommy. Okay. Then you say he doesn't deserve that. Well, you don't deserve to be treated like shit and you shouldn't have to put up with that. And who cares where he goes? He can find a roommate situation. He can live under a bridge. He can go live with his mom. He's not your problem anymore. Once you break up with him, you aren't responsible For him, and you aren't responsible for the consequences that he may suffer as a result of his actions or inaction. You need to emotionally separate yourself from this guy and break up with this guy and stop worrying about how he's going to feel about being broken up with. Nobody likes to be dumped. Nobody likes to be broken up with. Nobody likes to have to make new plans about where they're going to live or who they're going to live with in the wake of a breakup. So you can't protect him from any of that shit. The person you have to protect, the person whose feelings you need to prioritize right now at this moment is you and yours. You got to protect yourself. Got to protect your feelings. Worry about yourself. (sighs) If you tell yourself, if you let him convince you or you let the culture that tells women that they're responsible for relationships and that if a relationship fails, you failed as a woman, if you let all of that shit convince you you can't get out of this relationship until he's in a better place, until he's healthier, until he's in therapy, until he doesn't have to move back in with his mommy if you break up with him, you can never break up with him then. You will have essentially either allowed him to take you hostage or taking yourself hostage. Break the, f- I'm telling a lot of people to break up in this week show, break the fuck up with this guy. That's all you got to do. The person you're responsible to at this moment is you let him take care of himself. You take care of you and what you need right now is to be free of this asshole
4: and have a happy new
2: year. All right. Before we get to listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Sarah Corchesney tweets: "Hey at Fake Dan Savage, to your mild freak out that a prospective sex worker's mom knew about her plans. Some moms are or were sex workers. My parents met at a strip club 42 years ago. My mom was dancing, my dad was smitten, and now I exist. That's a very good point, Sarah. I would add that some dads are also sex workers. And hey, I'm glad your parents told you the truth about how they met." which made it possible for you to make this very good point to me, Sarah, not just possible for you to exist, but possible for you to tweet at me about my podcast. There's a whole chapter in my newest book, Savage Love From A to Z, about why people who met sleazy don't share the truth about how they met, particularly with their kids, and why they should. You might want to pick that up. Everybody might want to pick that up. Tyler Rose RPG tweets, Hey, Savage Love cast, an NBA gender person who likes women, is, I'm going to butcher this word as I try to pronounce it, Feminamoric, Feminamoric, feminomoric, or Trixic, Tyler Rose says. Trixic. Thank you, Tyler Rose. I will add Feminamoric to my spreadsheet of hyper-individualized sexual orientations and gender identities. There are a lot to keep track of. It's a little like collecting stamps. Thank you, Tyler Rose. I will add feminomoric to my spreadsheet of hyper-individualized sexual orientations and gender identities. And finally, Strawberry Times tweets, listening to the Savage Lovecast and audibly yelled, oh no, when the caller said they were 19 years old and engaged. I knew Dan would call it out. I fell in love at 17, but we dated for 14 years before we got married. Glad I waited and we matured together. I'm glad you waited two strawberry times. I am a big fan of long engagements, as I told that caller. Glad yours worked out and I hope theirs works out too. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Lovecast. And thank you to everybody who tweeted about the show over the last week or posted to your Instagram stories about the show. We really appreciate the support. And now, listener response calls.
12: So the caller in the recent podcast calling for advice about the campsite rule regarding her her young engaged lover, uh, while I agree with Dan that sometimes you got to do what you got to do, et cetera, et cetera, I think it would be a mistake to keep things going with this guy once he's married. Maybe it's just a coincidence that now he's much more ready to give you an emotional relationship, but the fact that you circle back around and he's engaged under duress and suddenly much more interested in you, uh, I'm not saying his feelings aren't real, but I'd be worried that a reaction, you don't say how young he is. So, I mean, that's possible that is him just reacting to the fact that he's stuck with somebody he doesn't want to be with. And you and he sees you as an emotional escape hatch. You know, don't take this the wrong way. Also, if his family is so involved in his life that they can dictate these sorts of terms and even find a woman willing to go along with it. I feel like the odds of keeping an affair going without getting caught are going to be very slim and the fact that he's willing to go along with it as well suggests to me that he's going to be conflicted which is likely to cause him you know depending on how young he is to do something drastic and foolish and maybe blow up his life and cause a lot of drama uh, i uh, it might i think it would be easier to just sort of quietly you know just sort of quietly let him go before the wedding you know, don't sleep with him you know the night before or anything like that but just, just slowly distance yourself. Maybe you know, just pull back to a texting friendship because I think that might be emotionally safer for him, especially, but also for you. Hey, Dan. This
3: is to the young New Englander in episode seven ninety one who is looking for her long lost love after a three way that didn't quite work out. Hi there, New Englander. Something you said in your call jumped out at me. You said you had been cradled by past partners and couples. In fact, you said it twice. What these people were doing was not cradling you. They were likely practicing what Dan calls the campsite rule. They were showing good stewardship of a young, intelligent woman who's exploring new sexual terrain. Being cradled is not a component we want to carry into adult relationships of any form. Speaking from experience, the third person or unicorn can and should also practice good stewardship of the other two. By stealing the show, as you admitted, what you did was build a wall with that guy instead of a bridge. And good stewardship is all about building bridges. So the next time you're in a three-way and you feel a spiritual, transcendental, revolutionary connection, to use some of the words you used, with only one of them, practice good stewardship. Then you might score the digits of your long-lost love. This
10: is in response to episode 791, the caller whose partner couldn't come up with a term to describe their gender and sexuality. I noticed the caller said that their partner couldn't use the word queer because they present as a white, cis male. But just because somebody has to live in the closet doesn't mean they aren't queer. I don't understand why this person can't use that catch-all term. It seems like somebody may have been gatekeeping that term, and gave the caller some pretty nasty information, I would just let their partner use the word queer. It seems to pretty much sum everything up. And then if they want to get into the specifics of it with someone, they can.
2: And we're gonna leave it there. Got a question for next week's show or a comment about something I said on this week's show? The best way to get us your questions and your comments is to use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment, and then email it to us At voicemail at savage lovecast.com you can also call us at 206 302 2064 the opening festival of hump 2022 is playing in seattle portland san francisco and olympia throughout january february and march with a whole new lineup of new smutty films that we just put together and i gotta say we're sitting on the hump jury this year it may be our best hump ever Tickets are on sale now, and as a special gift, every purchase comes with a free one month Magnum subscription to the Savage Love Cast. Go to humpfilmfest.com to grab your tickets and claim your Magnum sub today. And for Magnum subscribers, we're doing something a little different with Sack Lunch in January. On Thursday, January 6th, instead of hosting a lunchtime, online hangout i will be hosting happy sack a happy hour zoom 6 p.m pacific time 9 p.m eastern time and to mix it up we'll be playing a few rounds of raunchy games as one magnum sized happy family be on the lookout for more details come into your email inboxes magnum subs soon follow me on twitter at fake dan savage follow dr daniel grossman on twitter at dr d grossman The Savage Love Cast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Love Cast. Thank you for downloading.